pray before we start. Um, I, I know that there is, um, there's a lot. Uh, sometimes it's almost like you, it's feast and famine when it comes to um, grief and sickness, it seems like. Uh, but uh, as many of you know, Putin Rumsey passed away this morning, and we want to pray um, uh, for, for the family. Um, Stan is having surgery Friday. Um, and Gail is just kind of waiting about having surgery. She's got to get things fixed and then get surgery, so I want to pray for that. There's other people in this room. You might have a need or uh, something, but if you do, just kind of raise your hand, and everybody just kind of look around. I, I, look at that, Every, almost a fourth of us. So uh, let's bow our heads and let's pray for one another. Father, thank you for the gift of intercession that we can pray for one another, um, that we can present our needs before you, and we know that you're a loving God that will meet our needs, walk along the uh, side of us. And if you don't remove whatever it is that we're struggling with, God, you've got a way uh, to help us to get through that. And so, Lord, we pray for Puddin's family, that you would touch them, for Sherry, God, as you uh, comfort her in this time. Uh, Lord, we pray for Stan as he's going into surgery Friday, that you would be with the surgeons, guide them, direct them, and heal them. And, and for Miss Gail, God, that you would allow some of the issues that she's dealing with to settle out, that she can then also... Uh, be able to have the surgery that she's looking to. And all the hands that went up today, thankful, God, that you know the number of hair on our heads, so you know every need uh, that we have, and you know the needs that we don't know we have. And so, Lord, we lay them before you. We ask that you be mighty in those and touch us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I right, still got a cute couple coming on in, but uh, um, I hope you are loving this study. I also want to say that we're not even scratching the surface. Um, as you, uh, some of you were saying, hey, you know, like I, I found this book and I remember that I had studied this at one time. Uh, but there are materials out there that can help you um, further your study in, in the book of Revelation. But you have to understand that when you buy a book, someone is going to write from a, from a different uh, or a specific perspective on how they see things playing out. And so if you ever, like, find an author and you're just kind of like, I just don't really know a lot about them, uh, give me an email, shoot me a text, give me a call. Um, I might have some input into that. Um, but sometimes I may have to. It's just like when a kid calls up and says, hey, can you help me with my calculus? I'm like, yes, but I need to study it again because I have forgotten more than I ever learned. But I can I mean, sometimes I'll get questions on Algebra 1, and I can answer about 80% of the questions, but still I need to go back and refresh myself. But... But I want to help you um, to be able to navigate through that. But I want to give you one that I have loved. You've heard me quote him on Sunday morning. But his name is Thomas Constable. And if you go to this website, I'm going to say it slow, soniclight.com, S-O-N-I-C-L-I-G-H-T.com. Thomas Constable is a professor at Dallas Seminary um, in pastoral ministry. He published in, in a PDF form, in other words, a, a form you can download, commentary on all 66 books of the Bible. And so the beautiful thing about, about his commentary is it gets updated by him. It's not published in a book. So, like, um, I've gotten kind of fond of a, of a new series that's been put out by Zondervan, they haven't even finished publishing all the Bible, uh, Bible commentaries. But, for example, like the one I have on Revelation, by the time it was in print and on the shelf, it was already five years old. 
It's just the process of editing and revising and, and all those things. But if you want a quick, easy, and I say middle-of-the-road commentary to read, look up Thomas Constable, soniclight.com. I think you would be... Um, I think you'd be impressed. Now, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes he does drop a Greek word here or there, but not as bad as some of your more critical commentaries that are out there. Um, I love also Tony Evans' commentary on the Bible. You can buy the entire volume. It's about this thick, 66 books, for about 20-something bucks on Amazon. So just a nice, good, good companion to have over to the side for you to further your study. What you, what you can know from that, though, is, and this is for me, both of those guys um, take the stance of a pre-trib, pre-millennial view of the end times. So when I read it, I expect it to be that way. Um, some commentators, they are um, post-millennial, which if you remember from our study in heaven, which means that they believe that uh, Jesus will, uh, that we're kind of under that millennial reign now and that Jesus will come back and that everything's getting better before that happens. Uh, but there's some guys in there that are all millennial. They don't believe that there's going to be a physical thousand year, year reign here on the earth. I know I'm throwing some, a bunch of terms at you at one time. I'm just saying when you're reading somebody, be careful. Um, you know, as you read it, because sometimes there's things in there that just isn't true. And so I want to read somebody who dismisses all of their bias and is just looking at the text which is what some of the things we're going we're gonna to be looking at tonight. And I'll even show you, like, even though I, I believe that the timeline of the rest of history is that Jesus is going to appear, rapture the church, raise the dead, the believers in Christ, they will go to heaven. They will be in heaven during the seven years of tribulation, at which point Jesus will return and he will rule. This is, I'm just telling you what I believe. He will rule on the earth for a thousand years, mortals and immortals living together. I know it sounds weird, but we have big imaginations and at the end of that thousand year reign will be the great white throne judgment with all of the dead erased and um, death hell and Hades and the lost will be thrown into hell which is a horrible thing to think about that's where I come from but I am trying my best to offer all of those perspectives to you um, as we go through this study so are we good I just wanted to throw that out there as the caveat because that's just me so Let's review from last week. We, um, we, we took a journey through seven churches the last two weeks. Messages to the seven churches. And let me note something here. We're not going to see the word church for a while. These were seven messages to seven churches, but we will not see the word church till the end of the book of Revelation. Some commentators believe this is an evidence that the church has been raptured from the earth because the word church isn't mentioned. But what we learned from Ephesus is how, and we were challenged, how can we stoke our love for Christ? Remember, they were the church that were doing the stuff but didn't have love. We learned from Smyrna how, to, how do we could, could stand under satanic pressure. We need that today in this day and time. From the church of Pergamum, we, we were encouraged how to resist subtle temptation. From Thyatira, we, we were challenged how does the church properly stand to cultural appropriation. In other words, that idea of being subtly persuaded into the slippery slope of moving away from, from holiness and morality. The church of Sardis is how can I enliven my spiritual life to obedience? Like, I don't want to be dead. I want to be alive. 
in Philadelphia, how can I take hold of opportunities, the doors that God is putting before me? And then lastly, with Laodicea, we learned and were challenged, how can I be careful of becoming self-reliant and a self-sufficient Christian? Now, some of you guys may have gleaned a whole lot of other things, but the overarching message to me, remember I told you there were two purposes for this book. To encourage believers to persevere, right? But what was the other one? Godly living, holy living. And so we can see from the messages to those seven churches that that was the case. Now, as we jump in here tonight, I want us to do a little bit of an exercise. Um, But this one's a little bit different. I want to show you another method of Bible study. Um, What I have shown you up to this point was the one that I got from Howard Hendricks um, and his book, um, uh, about Bible study. This one's a little different. This is called the sword method. And I came across this method many years ago. And I used it in my children's ministry area. Because we would get our children's ministry curriculum. And sometimes it just didn't have enough stuff. How many of you have ever taught in the kids area? Or taught the kids Sunday school? Miss Cynthia, what was more frustrating than to get that, all that stuff. And you're getting ready. And you're going like, I don't have enough stuff. And you had to sit there and try to come up with something else, you know. So we would give our teachers this because we felt like these questions, um, these questions have inside of it embedded observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. But when you're approaching a text, and you notice there's a sword, the point of the sword goes up. And so we, when we're looking at a passage, we ask these six questions. What do we learn about God from this passage? Because that's the most important thing. We believe Scripture is the revelation of God. So therefore, we want to make sure that we are learning something about the Lord. At the bottom, at the hilt of the sword, is people. What do we learn about people? In other words, what does it say about you and me or the people in that context? And then it starts these series of four questions that spells the word speck. And the only way I can help you to maybe to remember that is just to think it's a speck in your eye without a K. I, I don't know. That's the only thing I can come up with. I hate acronyms sometimes, but sometimes they work. But when you're looking at a passage, ask yourself these four questions. Is there a sin to avoid? In other words, you read in there and it says, thou shalt not. Or you see an example of somebody doing something that they shouldn't. Is there a promise to claim? And I would say that that should be clear. It's not one you're trying to inject in there, but that you see of if this then this kind of formula the e stands for example is there an example to follow and then finally c is there a command to obey and i believe that's clear go do this that's that's what a command is in in the greek language there's a form you know when it is an exact command brush your teeth you don't have to you don't have to guess that is it a command or not a command it's not a suggestion it's a command so Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Revelation 4.11. We're going to be in chapter 11, I mean chapter 4. And there's only 11 verses tonight, so surely I can get finished by 7.30 and not feel like that we're rushing too much. But here's what I want you to do. I want you in the blanks on your study guide, as always, I just think this is a good practice to copy the verse down. When you study education, the more senses that you can use, the more likely it is to stick. So when you copy a verse down, you're seeing it, you're touching it, you're handling it. I mean, if you want to pick up your Bible and smell it, you can, 
you can smell. I mean, I'm just kidding. But the more senses that you employ, you do that. So read that verse, write that verse, and then I have blanks. I believe on the, I think you have to turn to the second page, but I want you to work through those six questions. This won't take as long as the method we've been using up to this point. So take a few moments to do that. Dave, you back there? Or Stephen back there? Who's that back there? Oh, it's Rapunzel. Hey, uh, could you play a little bit of music? My, maybe. Even Jeopardy music would be awesome. There we go. Anybody got any questions, though, about what to do? Pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? So if you're a parent in the room, this is something you actually could take your kids through. Very easy, very easy way to help them to begin studying the Bible. Uh, let me read it to you. Worthy are you, O oh, oh, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So two weeks ago when we were talking about just basic grammar, what one word do you see repeated in this verse twice before we get to those questions? There's a word, there's a word repeated twice, a very main word, created. So, I think there's a point to be made here about what's being created. So, what does this tell you? Let me just, I'll just put my answers up here, and you can agree or disagree with these. What do we learn about God? Share some of the things that you say that you learned about God in this verse. Anything? And say it loud enough, I'm going to repeat it. Creator, we, we, uh, we learn that, that God is being attributed, or it is being stated that He is the sole creator. Okay? What else did you learn about God in this verse? He's worthy. You know, the word worthy is what we get doxology from. I mean, it's just, that is, that, it's penultimate. It's like, sometimes you think when we tell God, God, you are worthy. He's already worthy. Well, why are we telling him he's worthy? Is it like he doesn't know he's worthy? No, we're attributing that to him. So, it's, it's awesome. What else, did, what else did you learn about God? One more. He's the sustainer. Yeah. Uh, the breath we're taking right now, that's just going in into your lungs and out of your lungs. He is the sustainer of life. Love it. Well, what did we learn about people? Anything in this verse about people? What's that? Yeah, hey, we've been, we've been created. We have been created, but what is the purpose of our creation? Or to glorify God, plain and simple. This verse is, if you've ever, if anybody's ever asked you or you've ever wondered why was people created, there it is. We weren't created because God had a hole in his heart and he needed somebody to love. We weren't created because things were incomplete, because God was complete in and of himself as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were created because God willed it to be so. What else did we learn? Anything else about people? All right, let's move to the next one. Is there a sin to avoid? I mean, the word sin is not appearing in here, but is there a sin to avoid that's, that, that, we're, that we could uh, draw from that verse? I mean, I'm, I, I wrote one in, but you may have had something different. I said, if you do anything outside the will of God, it's sin. Because if we were created according to his will, and then we don't do according to his will, is that not sin? Yes or no? Would y'all agree with that? Okay. What else? Did y'all have anything else? Is there a sin to avoid?
I got that. So, so what was just said there was that we don't try to need to exceed the glory of God and take things upon ourselves. Man, I wonder, is there a story in the Bible about somebody who did that? If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Was that not the original temptation? Good, good point, Shannon. All right. Well, let's go to number four because I want to explain why I put this. Is there a pl- promise to claim? I said no. I mean, I don't read of anything in there that says, if this, then this. If I do this, then this would happen. Or Did y'all see one? Anybody, anybody disagree with that one? Please disagree with him. Okay. And then I said, is there an example to follow? And I should put that in bold because there is an example to follow here. Because when we begin to back up into the context, we'll see who it is that is saying these things. But I put in here, we should give the same honor and glory to God as the court of heaven. What, what about you? Do you have a different nuance of that or any different way? I think that's the example we're seeing, and I think it's the example we follow. If the court of heaven is praising the Lord, then what should we do? Just praise the Lord. What else do you have? Anything? You want to borrow my new ones? Come on. And then this last one, I said, is there a command to obey? And I said, no. Anybody want to debate that one? Because, I mean, you could say that if we're created for the glory of God, then we should worship God. I might, I might, I might buy that. But the reason I said there's not a command to follow is because I'm, I think very specifically, when we think, think Ten Commandments. If we were applying the sword method to the Ten Commandments, would we have some commands to follow? Absolutely. Thou shalt not kill. That is a commandment. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Those are commands. Do you see the difference? And so this is just, I don't know if this will help you. I mean, again, each week I'm going to try to give you something to get us started, to get us chewing, because uh, Revelation 4.11 is where this passage is going to head tonight. But I want to give you some more tools. This one may help you, may hurt you, I don't know. But again, if you're, if you're a parent in this room, raise your hand. If you're a parent of kids under 20, raise your hand. This is something you could sit down with a kid and have them draw the sword, God, man, and spell speck, and sit at Huddle House eating uh, scrambled eggs and show them how to take a verse and break it down. It's, it's that easy. So... We're going to jump right in here to chapter 4, and I am going to try to take some pauses and breaks, and I just, I appreciate you guys just being able to drink this, and I was telling somebody this week that, I mean, we could probably spend the next five years studying this book, but what we're going to do is we're going to go through it, and hopefully it's going to encourage you to want to go back and dig a little deeper. Now, I mentioned earlier about how that... I, I believe in the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial uh, reign of Christ. Most uh, scholars would say right now at this point in the book, remember chapter 1 is, was that vision that he had of Christ standing among the lampstands. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 were the messages that he gave to the present day church at that time. Seven churches that we believe existed in history. And now we're between chapter 3 and chapter 4 and if you've ever been to a play, I mean, if you've ever been to like the Fox Theater, maybe you've been to Broadway or off-Broadway, you know, you, you, you really can't sit in there for three hours 
without a break. And so you take an intermission. You step out and you come back in and the, and the scene picks back up. Sometimes some time has passed. Well, that's what's happened here. We don't know in the vision if there was a determined amount of time. But I want you to think in that, in that reference to premillennialism that we're between the time of those first century churches and the tribulation. Remember there was the promise that you would that, that 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 church would not be under the testing that they would be pulled away. Remember that from, from one of the churches last week. And so that's where we're sitting. We are we have had a little bit of time and now we are in this uh, chapter where it's really setting up what's about to unfold from there all the way almost to the end of the book of Revelation, which we would call the tribulation. And so in this chapter, verses 1 through 2a is going to describe the means of John's vision. It's almost like he's, he's, said, he's starting over again. Remember in chapter 1 he said, I was in the Spirit on Patmos when he saw this, this vision of Christ standing among the lampstands. But something cool is going to happen in this vision today. Verses 2b through 3 is going to describe a magnificent picture of God on his throne. I mean, it is, it is glorious. I, I found a picture. I'm actually excited about this picture. But I found this picture, I think, really depicts maybe what it looks like. But even that doesn't get close to what I think it's going to look like. In verse 4, we're going to be introduced to some characters. The first set of characters, two, two sets, but the first set is what is known as the 24 elders. We're going to talk about who are the 24 elders. Are they angelic beings? Are they people? All right, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Then we get a further description of God's throne, and we get an image of the Holy Spirit. Again, the, the, we get it depicted as seven torches that are in the presence of, of the throne. Then we get some description of some very odd creatures. They're known as the four living creatures. I'm, look, I, I'm looking at your faces. This is so good. This is like teaching fractions to fourth graders. Now you're just kind of going like, huh? And then finally we wrap this up because what this is pointing us to is the action and the substance of worship in the court of heaven. And it's awesome. So let me just go ahead and tell you, this. to me, the primary takeaway from this lesson tonight is worship. It's worship. We're going to get to see a glimpse of what the heavenly court looks like. Next week, the setting continues in chapter 5 because we're going to be introduced to the Lamb because there's a problem in heaven. Not a problem that's outside of God's control, but they have these scrolls and seals that need to be opened that begins the judgments of God. But only someone worthy can open those seals. And do you remember who it is that steps forward to open those seals? A lamb, as having been slain from the foundation of the world, steps forward. And so four and five are the setting that gets us started into the three times sevenfold revelation of God's judgment in tribulation. That's not anything to write home and celebrate. It's going to be kind of, kind of disturbing. It's going to be tough. That's where we're headed. So... I want you to look at this statement. Worship is most, the most central human activity. 
I just want you to, I just want you to process that, that, that sentence. Worship is the most central human activity. As someone's already said in this room tonight, we were created to glorify God, which means we were created to worship. Now, does that mean for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I walk around with a harp to my side, strumming along on God is good, uh-huh. I'm ordering my food at Chick-fil-A because God is good. And I just start making up songs because God is so good. I mean, we can make it up. I mean, we can do it. Y'all want to keep going? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Y'all probably like, please stop. And if, now let me check this out. It sets us apart from all of creation. When in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God said, let us make man in our image according to his likeness. And then he set man over creation. Keep that one pocketed in your mind. He did so because we were the representation of God to creation. It did not make us gods. Let's be clear on that. We're not gods. We never have been gods. We never will be gods. We're not going to be turned into gods. But we were the representatives, representation of God to, human, to the earth. To rule it and subdue it. But what happened in chapter 3? Man listened to creation through the serpent. And upended the creative order. It was God, man, creation. And when man listened to the serpent, he listened to creation and inverted that. And so it opened a door for sin and death to come into this world. And when sin came to this world, so came the curse. The curse that drove man out of the garden where there was perfect peace and perfect relation with God. God walked with them in the cool of the garden and all of that was gone. And does anybody remember why God had to throw them out of the garden? Yes, that is correct. Did you hear what she said? So that they would not eat from the tree of life. And so he kicks them out. Does anybody remember what he put to guard the entrance to the garden? Yeah, he put his, he put some stud angels. I mean, he's like, you ain't coming back in. You just keep on going. And that seems harsh, but they fell. They fell into sin, and, and they, God enacted that curse. And so, if in the court of heaven, which we're going to see is holy other than us, devoid of sin, devoid of the curse, more majestic than anything we could ever imagine, if in the court of heaven there is absolute worship, then what does that mean for worship here on earth? What that means is that worship is more than an event. That means that worship is more than a gathering. Worship ought to be my heartbeat in life. You following? It ought to be the very thing that defines anything and everything that I do so that if I put my hand to the plow, I do so for the glory of God and I plow that garden so that God is glorified. If I'm an accountant, I sit there and I do my calculations for the glory of God to, to, to the best of my ability. If I am somebody who works with people, I love on those people and I treat those people well. Why? For the glory of God. If I'm a parent, I parent my kids well for the glory of God. When I mess up, and we do, I go to the Father for forgiveness. And I make restitution to those around, us, around me that I have offended. Why? For the glory of God. 
And that's what it means to live a life. And what we're going to find out is the four living creatures who are initiating worship in heaven, that's not all they're doing. We're going to find out that they actually go and do give narration to the seals that are opened. In fact, each, this is so cool, I'm getting ahead. When we get to chapter 6 and he begins to open the first four seals, who knows what the first four seals are in a very summative uh, word? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. For each of the four horsemen, there is one of these four living creatures that gives narration to it. He'll say to John, come and look at this. Pretty cool. Anyway, getting ahead. All right, so I want you to turn and I want you to look at 4.1 and let's go ahead and let's begin to read. Now I'm going to chunk this up hopefully into just, you see there's just really three main points that I want us to make uh, about the court of heaven. Will, uh, Warren Wiersbe says this, Creation as a whole simply worships God. The humans who represent God's people understand why they do so. That's why we're different. God gave us the faculty to be able to think logically, to communicate, to be able to know God is there, God is, 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 has a will, God has a plan. We have that and creation does not. But wasn't it Jesus that said, if you quiet the crowds, the very stones will cry out. Creation is aware of the majesty of God, but does not have the thinking faculty that you and I have. And so he goes, he says, there it is, the because, the reason we honor and glorify God, that because, it distinguishes us from other animals, however noble those animals may be, humans are given the capacity to reflect. And so he says, worship, after all, is the most central human activity. It's what should tie us together. And so point number one is, says this, the court of heaven is a place other than earth. After these things, I looked. What things? That was the, the, the time, the, the, the little bit of a blip the intermission of the messages that Jesus gave him to give to the church. After these things, I looked, and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. That word literally means it wasn't like it was being opened. It wasn't something he had to open. It was fully opened. There is no St. Peter standing there to open the door. Are we, are we clear on that? There is no reference to St. Peter in heaven. That's meddling. And he said, and I heard the first voice that I heard sounded like a trumpet speaking to me and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. You could pencil in their diamond. There's a, there's a passage later in Revelation it talks about jasper being very, very valuable. Uh, more than likely it was diamond. But that's how, he just, how it's described. And he said, and a sardius, it was in a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So unfortunately, the Revelation song does miss this a little bit. Because this is not a multicolored rainbow as the rainbow that God gave to Noah as a promise. 
This is a bow that is emerald in its appearance. And I'm going to go ahead and read verse 4. And he said, oh, now, I'm going to stop there. Verse number 3. So, the court of heaven is the place that is other than earth. Robert Mount said, a true insight into history is gained only when we view things from the vantage point of the heavenly throne. In other words, the first vision that John had in chapter 1 and then given to, through 2 and 3 was on earth, Jesus came to him, revealed himself. Now he has opened a door into heaven. And I don't know how big that distance was. I don't know if, we don't know. I mean, John didn't describe where his feet were. But I want you to notice the two things. Open door and come up here. Why is that important? Because for John to understand the creative order of history and God's will for this, he needed a perspective other than his earthly perspective. Are you following? How hard is it sometimes when somebody is trying to explain their perspective of something? We used to tell our students when I was in Helen that, you know, most of you have seen Mount Yona in Cleveland, right? It has a rock face that kind of faces south, south, southwest. If you're in Helen driving to Cleveland, though, you don't see that rock face. So I could say, hey, there's Mount Yona, and it is covered with trees. But somebody who is south of that, that's what I say. I mean, exactly what she just said. That's, that's, that, she's learning amen. Right there it was. If I was on the south side of the mountain, though, looking north, then I would say with confidence, no, there is a rock face on this mountain. That's the difference of perspectives. So John, it was necessary for the Spirit to bring John into something that was other than. He's going to bring him into the court of heaven where God the Father is sitting so that he can get the perspective of heaven about history, not human's perspective of history. Are you following? It's really more powerful, and I mean, not to make much of a sense, but he had to have this change of scenery. John is taken into heaven to gain the perspective of heaven. So John goes, there's the door, he goes in. In 320, remember, Jesus said to Thyatira, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I come in. There was a closed door and a soft voice. Now there's an open door and a loud voice that sounds like a trumpet. Very distinctive. The tone and the decibel level, they, he knew this, oh, this is different. Here Jesus was kind of talking to me. Now I'm going somewhere else. And he needed to so that he could get himself away from the earth. The Spirit took him there. So the application that I want to suggest here in verse 1 is how do you and I remove the distractions of this world to seek heavenly perspective in our situations? Do you, do you see that? You have to remove yourself from the world if you're ever going to gain God's perspective of a heavenly plan. Does that make sense? It's a challenge. Verse number two, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. And it's awesome that he was in the Spirit. And the Spirit described a few moments ago. The Spirit in this chapter is, is described by number seven. Remember, seven represents completeness. But here what we see is not only is he seeing the Spirit uh, depicted as the seven flames in front of the throne, but he's also the means by which he was ta taken up into the heavens. 
Why? Because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. We've been talking about the feeling of the Spirit, how the Spirit can be in us but can be around us. That's this great thing about the Spirit. I had this thought. Man, is there not a better book that highlights the, 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 the sovereignty of the Trinity? We're bouncing back and forth between God the Father on the throne and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I mean, just all of that wrapped in together. How can you read the book of Revelation and not see the beautiful depiction of the Trinity of God? It's, it's, it's staring right at us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 5, Paul talks about someone who was caught up into the heavens. In fact, I kind of believe this too. He's actually that man. He said, I once knew a man who was caught up into the third heaven. But he's in the context of boasting. He refers to himself like Bob Dole used to do in the 96 election in the third person so that he doesn't bring attention to himself. So he's not boasting on himself that, I, look, I got caught up in the third heaven and I saw this vision, but I didn't tell anything, anybody about it. John, though, has to tell this that he was caught up into the, to the heavens to, to, to really lay the foundation that he's in the heavenly court he is about to see what's going to happen when tribulation comes. And so it's, it's just a, it's an awesome moment. So we get this view, we get this first view of heaven. Now we, 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 we're going to read, we're going to look at some other things in Isaiah and Ezekiel that kind of lay this out too. But this is, um, let, me, let me come over here. I want, I want you to see this. Wait, where did it go? I got too fast. I want, this is the best picture I could find. I love this picture because as you begin to look at this, and I'm, we'll unpack this a little bit more, and I'll come back to this picture in a little bit. But he described the one sitting on the throne as having a radiance like that of Jasper. And that represents the purity and the holiness of the Father. The Father of lights. In fact, we're going to find out at the end of Revelation, He is so radiant, there is no need for sun or moon, remember? He glows. I mean, remember Moses, after he had an interaction with the Lord, he came back off the mountain, and what was his face doing? It was glowing. And so this first description was like a, like a jasper. And then the other one was like sardius. And, and the sardius was mined, catch this, in the town of Sardis, which was one of the seven churches, locations of the seven churches, it's a fiery red uh, stone. Well, why is that important? Why is it that he's, he's glowing and then he has this radiance of red? Well, red represents judgment. It represents judgment that in the court of heaven, the Lord is sitting in the court of heaven. He is radiant, awesome, majestic, pure and holy, but his judgment is sure and perfect. But then he talks about the rainbow. And we don't know exactly what this bow looked like. It could have surrounded him here. It could have surrounded the whole court. We don't know. But what did the rainbow represent in the story of Noah? It may represent a promise. So as you have the holiness of God, the justice of God, you also have surrounding him the sure promise of God, the mercy of God, the awesomeness of God to love somebody like, like you and me. And so if you look back at the text, as he, as he plays this out, we get this beautiful picture 
of what the one who sits on the throne looks like. In fact, you find this description as well. I'm going to jump around in my notes for a second. In the book of, of, of Daniel, chapter 7, when he's talking about the Ancient of Days, he says his vesture was, was like white snow and his hair with pu- like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. There was a river of fire flowing before him. You see the seven? Seven flames, we're going to read about those in a second. And then it says thousands upon thousands of myriads were surrounding him. That's the, that's the description we get from the book of Daniel. And it looks just, it sounds just like this. And we see in Ezekiel one twenty six, he says, Now the above the expanse that was over their head, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of man. So we have these three colors in a rainbow, and each one represents some aspect of God's attributes. He is, is being radiant. He's, he's described as light in Psalm 104.2, and he's described in 1 Timothy 6.16 as unapproachable light. God is radiant and majestic. Robert Mount said this about this picture. Various meanings have been attached to the different stones. Jasper has been associated with his qualities of majesty, holiness, and purity. Carnelian, which is another word for sardius, has been interpreted in connection with wrath and judgment, and emerald with mercy. The rainbow reminds us of God's covenant. Catch that. Reminds us of God's covenant. They describe in symbolic form the majesty of God resplendent and clothed in unapproachable light. So I want you to think for just a moment about the story of Noah. I want you to think about the promise that God made. What was the promise that the rainbow represented? I will never again destroy mankind with a flood. But he's about to pour out the wrath of God on, on humanity. And it's not going to involve a flood. He is about to destroy what is known. But in that, embedded in that, is the promise that the just God of the world, the one who sent his son to die and redeem those who would believe, would keep his word. Why? Because we see that in heaven, we've got this awesome court that's above anything that's on the earth. So point number two, the court of heaven is populated with beings that are greater than earth. So let me pick up with verse number four. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders seated or sitting, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And out from one of the thrones came flashes of lightning. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf, or your translation may say oxen. I will argue more for calf than oxen. It's two different words. And third creature had the face like that of a man. And the language there changes in the original text. The other three are similar, but this one's different. And then the last one, he says, the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So you have a strong beast, you have a majestic animal, 
you have a, a creature that intellectually is superior to all, and you have something of swift. Not just an eagle, but a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within. I'm going to stop there at the middle of verse 8. So as we look at this, who are these 24 elders? Who are they and what are they? Now remember, I said in Bible study, we need to be careful of ascribing meaning to something the text does not ascribe. Let me give you what I think is the, is the most basic and safe interpretation of who the 24 elders are. They are heavenly beings sitting on 24 thrones. Now, that doesn't mean they're not repre- can't be representative of something, but the text does not tell us that. In fact, when we get to the New Jerusalem, we will see where numbers are ascribed symbolically The gates of New Jerusalem will have one of the tribes of Israel inscribed on it. And the stones that serve as the foundation of the city will have the names of the apostles written on it. So see, the text in John does give clues to what is representative, right? I think what we see here in this image is you have 24 beings in heaven that are sitting on thrones in the court that are participating in the judgments of God. Now, let me give you some theories about that and what you can do. Some say that these 24, because this is viewed as being after the rapture, are 24 selected people from the redeemed, from the church. That They, they are 24. They, those that believe that don't necessarily give an identity to who they are, but they believe that they're possibly humanity, humans, now in the heavenly court, seated with God. And then it makes sense because Jesus did promise that for those that would endure, he would clothe them in white. Did he not say that to one of the churches? That he did say to another church that you will rule with me on thrones. Did he not say that? So, I mean, I think we got some textual evidence that we could say, yeah, this is the redeemed, that these are humans. And we know in just a few moments what we just read They are subjugated to the four living creatures. The four living creatures are the ones that initiate heavenly worship. Now, symbolically, let's let's, let's go down this path. Some would argue that the 24 represents two groups of 12. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Now, this to me is a little weird. It's like a back to the future moment. Because John is one of the 12. So if he's standing in the court of heaven looking at the 24 people sitting there, he'd be looking at himself. And he would mess up the time-space paradox. No, I'm just kidding. No, he wouldn't. But, I mean, don't you think for a moment that John would probably recognize at least half of them? We'll be known as we're known. We're not going to change our appearance. But if, if this is the twelve. If half of these are the apostles, don't you think John would have picked up on it? I'm just, I'm just making a suggestion. I mean, they, they, one argument is that, that these are people because they are clothed in white. Well, they're not the only ones that are clothed in white. Angels are clothed in white. One argument is, is that, no, they have to be human because there's nowhere else in Scripture that attributes giving crowns to angels. That's not true either. So there's the, there is the symbolic representation that these are men, and half of them are, are from the tribes, or represent the tribes of Israel, and half represent the apostles. But what if they're just heavenly beings? 
I think that's the safest. And I agree with Chuck Swindoll when he said, don't get hung up on the identification of these. Because if you do, it will, it will, it will give you maybe something that's not there. You would then begin trying to read a meaning into the meaning. So let's just accept tonight, for, for all in, in, in study purposes, that these are 24 heavenly beings. Now, if you want to disagree with that, that's fine. If you want to say this is humans, if you want to say, yeah, the 12 of them are the apostles, go ahead. But I'm saying the text does not reveal that. If the text is revealing it in other places and is not revealing it here, then I don't think you need to, like, make a big deal out of that. Because we see in Isaiah 24, 23 that there's evidence that the title of elder is attributed to angelic beings. He says, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before all of his elders. And that was before this. And so let me just kind of skip down through here and uh, hit number, verse number five. We get to verse number five, we, we see that we see the lightning and we see the thunder that's coming out. It reminds us of Exodus 19 when the Israelites get to Mount Sinai and God tells uh, Moses, come up on the mountain and there is terrible lightning that represents the, the impeding judgment of God. Remember he said, don't let anything touch the base of this mountain. And we're kind of getting that same image, aren't we? That this holy God, I mean, look, I mean, he's got lightning coming out like this. I wouldn't have drawn it like it was off of some kind of Flash episode. You know, the Flash from DC Comics. I think I'd have drawn a little bit better lightning than that. But, but we know that this is an awe-inspiring image that's coming out. He points out that there's the seven flames, which represents the wholeness, the unity of the lamps. When you go back to 1-4, we see this togetherness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wholeness and completeness and equality. I think that's something, if, if, any, if you haven't gleaned anything else from our series on the Holy Spirit, it's this. The Holy Spirit isn't the lap puppy of the Father. He is God himself too. And uh, y'all got to be here Sunday for that surprise. You're going to love it. But remember what John the Baptist said. Baptize with fire to purify and to cleanse. With the Spirit seen as seven torches, the completeness of God's judgment and cleansing will come and it will produce whatever God desires. And then you get this sea of glass. So what's the sea of glass? Why a sea of glass? Let me propose this. You can see it down here. But remember, how did John get into to the court of heaven? How did he get there? He came through an open door. But now you've got this sea of glass, and if it is translucent as we believe, God is able to sit separated, but with all means to be able to see what's going on beneath. Y'all with me? Because remember, John went which way? Up. He was called up to come into heaven and this sea of glass gives God and all of those around him the ability to see, see down. When one of the seals are opened up, seal number five, it tells us that beneath this throne, there's another uh, compartment in this room. Y'all know what it is? The fifth seal. Who remembers the fifth seal? You get the four horsemen, the fifth seal is the martyrs under the throne crying out for vengeance. How long, O oh Lord, till you avenge our blood? 
Remember we talked about if you were in our study of heaven, that's how we know that when we get to heaven, God doesn't wipe our brain out. He doesn't exchange us. We know who we were, where we were, what we were. And we know what happened to us. If the, if the martyrs under the throne in heaven know what happened to them and who did it to him, and they're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, do you avenge us? And we just don't see that in here yet. We'll get there. So then we get to these four living creatures. The four living creatures. And so what we see with the four living creatures, it's just weird. Can we just agree with that? I mean, you've, the way that they're described, so let me just kind of go back through here. You have one with the face of a lion, the face of an ox or a calf, the face of a human, and the face of a flying eagle. Each of these beings have six wings. What does that sound like? It does sound like seraphim. Where do we get the seraphim? Isaiah, Isaiah 6.3. We get this depiction of, of, of God coming into the temple, filling the temple, and the seraphim flying around. With two they flew, with two they covered their feet, and with two they covered their eyes. But now here's the difference. In this depiction, and you can't see it from here, they are covered front and back with eyes. Their wings are covered with eyes. So in the court of heaven... With a God who is bringing judgment, it's important that his primary servants that are in front of the Holy Spirit are able to see everything. And they can see everything. No matter what they're doing, where they're going, if they're flying or not flying, they can see everything through that sea of glass down to the earth. God's knowledge has no end. It is completely exhaustive. We can't hide from God, can we? Do y'all see that? God knows everything about us, every thought, every motion, every twitch, everything. He knows everything, and his servants know everything because these beings are above, better than what we have here on earth. Golly, I'm out of time. Man, if I only had another hour. Let's go to point number three. Y'all love this? Please tell me you love this. If you don't, you just kind of give me like, you know how sometimes somebody will tell a joke and you kind of give that <laughs> that laugh just to kind of make them feel better about themselves? I'm just saying, do you love this? You can just kind of go, it just make me feel better about myself. Point number three is the court of heaven is filled with worship above all the earth. Listen to what he says. The four living creatures, verse 8, each of them having six wings and full of eyes within and around, day and night... They do not cease saying. Now, wait a minute. Do they cease? Yes, they do, because we're going to find them talking to John in chapter 6. So, again, they're not walking around with a Walkman on, playing a harp, saying, Oh, God, as I'm working for you and talking to John and telling him about these seals and the horsemen, it's not what he's doing. All right? They're not walking around like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But what we begin to get is the substance of the process of worship. Day and night they say, Holy Holy, holy. And again, where does that come from? Isaiah. That's what we hear the seraphim saying. More than likely, the four living creatures are cherubim and seraphim. Mighty angels. Different. In fact, when, in, when you read a double repetition of a word, it adds emphasis. But when you get the threefold repetition, 
it designates the superlative and calls attention to the infinite holiness of God. And that's what they sing, to the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come, which takes us back to the same languages in 1.8 that Jesus used to describe himself. Do you see Trinity? Come on, do you see the Trinity? They're singing this to the one who sits on the throne, who was and is and is to come. And Jesus introduced himself to John as the one who is and is, was and is and is to come. Then we see the invitation for the elders to join. And he says, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne Because it's not wrong to want to have the reward. But the motivation here is that I've received the crown. Now I'm going to give it back to him. It's where the group casting crowns got their name. Let me me paint this in, in literalness here. To fall down means to go from a position here to here. I'm just going to embarrass myself. The word worship, proskuneo, means to prostrate yourself. And what you don't see in this picture is that when they begin to sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, those elders get the cue and they get down on their knees and they fall down on their face and they sprawl themselves out before the Lord and they throw their crown before Him and then they begin to sing and they sing, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power again, God doesn't need to be told who he is, but they are ascribing it to him out of absolute worship. And then they say, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And that includes the four living creatures and the 24 elders that are seated around the throne because of the redemptive power of God. How about we leave it in tension this week and cut it off right there because next week we're going to pick up where God begins to unfold judgment. But let me give you, I see all that stuff I missed. It's all good stuff. The stage is set. The Almighty is about to bring judgment and tribulation upon the earth. The end is coming. How should this knowledge affect our private and public praying and worship? I mean, when you think that these freaky dudes are in front of the Lord and they are crying out, holy, 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 like they did in the temple, And then you see the 24 elders get down on their knees and throw their face on the ground, just like Isaiah did. And remember that? He he threw himself. And they're not not sinners because they're in the court of heaven. There's no need to lay down and say, I'm a worm. They're returning back to God what God has given to them. Number two, how can I, as the higher creative form in all the earth, be more intentional to think about this God, the El Shaddai. How could I do that? And finally, is corporate worship important in my spiritual walk? Can I, can I recommend this? You can sing in the car by yourself, and I think you, you live a lifestyle of worship, but there is something very special about gathering with other believers with open and pure hearts and singing to God together. It just, it, and there, there's, just, there's no greater experience. You think about the Lord's Supper, and we're going to have Lord's Supper in two Sundays, so kind of mentally mark that in two Sundays. How many Sundays? 
Two Sundays, the 11th, we're going we're gonna to share in the Lord's Supper. We're going to come to that table together to worship the King of the universe who shed his blood and had his body broken that we could be redeemed. And so my, my challenge to you is how to prioritize worship. And is private worship really worship? Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to leave, let these words sit with us this week and motivate us to a deeper sense of worshiping the one who sits on the throne, who is majestic and powerful, who in his judgment is pure, but in his radiance and his glory, he is merciful, who keeps his promises. Lord, let us mimic, let us follow the example of those 24 elders and those four living creatures and move us into a place where we can experience deeper communion with you in our worship in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, guys. Have a great week. Fire hydrant Bible study. I have not. Mm-mm.